If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. NRHO allows us to land anywhere on the lunar surface, and we have a whole bunch of commercial contracts that are out there for the Eclipse mission, Commercial Lunar Payload Services, which is going to help us deploy robots all over the moon to help us map, explore, and assess the resources and phenomenon that we discover there. Exploring the secrets of the universe for the benefit of all. That is NASA's new vision statement as Artemis One prepares for launch. Embarking on a new chapter where humans not only return to the moon, but explore the surface while looking towards a future of lunar habitation with possible eventual colonization of Mars. Matt Wittall is Mission Design and Planetary Science at NASA. The following podcast is not in any way, shape, or form affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. Matt, what an exciting time. Before the launch of Artemis 1, coming up in just a matter of weeks, what still has to happen or is happening to make the launch a success? Yeah. So obviously, it takes a lot of people to get a rocket off the ground, tons and tons of people, and even more when it's something like a moon rocket, like what we've got going on now. So there's a lot of preparation. People are double, triple checking systems. You know, we've rolled it out to the pad a couple times for that wet dress rehearsal. And just like Apollo, there was troubleshooting that had to go on to make sure it was good to go. But now we're finally there. We've passed all the milestones and people are just doing final checks and getting everything ready to go. What were some of the lessons learned from the wet dress rehearsals? It seemed like the media was saying, oh, it didn't work. But what they're ignoring is you have to get something wrong in order to get it right. Yeah, precisely. And people tend to forget that, you know, during the Apollo program, when we first launched the Saturn V and the all the iterations of the Saturn V rocket, Saturn II B, etc., we had troubleshooting going on then, too. It didn't go off the first time. You see how many times it takes to get any launch right, any prototype, any new system running. And SLS is no different, especially when it has so many complicated systems that are built into it. So we learned a lot about the retrospect rehearsal. We had this big playbook ready to go, and we followed it step by step through all the way down to the 38-second mark. And we learned that, you know, we have a couple hydrogen leaks that we had to get patched up. And that's just part of troubleshooting. Hydrogen's notoriously difficult to keep bottled up and then pumping it into a, an active rocket that's undergoing a lot of thermal stress from different temperatures and being pumped full of all this liquid hydrogen. You know, it's no surprise that we had a leak or two. SLS, Space Launch System, if I understand correctly, right. is the world's most powerful rocket. This is going to be taking Orion further than we've ever gone before in space. What are some of the other firsts involved in Artemis 1? Well, this is going to be the first time, well, Artemis 1 is, of course, the unmanned mission, but we're going to be testing out a whole lot of new systems that we've never had before. The Orion capsule is going to be full of test equipment that we're going to learn a lot about the environment that we're going to send our astronauts to, and the NRHO, where we're going to put our, our gateway element and all the infrastructure that we're going to need to have a sustainable infrastructure in order to maintain a habitable outpost on the moon for long term. So there's things like sensors inside the radiation shielding. So Orion has this kind of radiation shelter just in case of a solar storm. So there's going to be sensors in there and sensors out of there. And we really want to understand more about the environment. So it's the first time that we're going to be able to get a lot of this data because during the Apollo program, we didn't really know what to expect when we were going out there. So there's a lot of new systems that are in place that we're going to be launching and testing for the first time. That's got to be exciting for you as a researcher. What was that term you just said, NRHO? What is that? 
Right. NRHO, I'm sorry, NASA acronyms, of course. NRHO is Near Rectilinear Halo Orbit. That's that very unusual, almost potato chip shaped orbit that the gateways can be placed in. Thank you for defining that because that went by me and I went, what was that again? <laughs> no problem. Take me forward in your imagination, please. It's now launch day. Everything's going right. Where are you and what are you doing? So I am not on the launch team. I do a lot of the spacecraft dynamics, but you can bet I'm going to be about three miles away from the rocket, from the the press site, watching as this rocket takes off. I've been looking forward to this, of course, for years. Even before I got to NASA, this was a big deal. So there on the pad, it's going to be, I'm going to get out there several hours early and wait as they prep and get get ahead of the crowd. And eventually this rocket's going to go off. And, you know, the solid rocket boosters on the side of SLS are the same ones we used on the space shuttle, just a little bit bigger. And they're known to have this kind of sound of ripping paper. When you have solid rocket boosters, they don't burn as smooth as liquid rockets. So you're going to have this shaking, this vibration, this crackling going through the air. And the vibration gets into your chest. If you've ever been to a top thrill dragster race, it's a lot like that, where the your chest cavity kind of vibrates. You feel the sound. And so it's a really special occasion. And of course, I've never seen SLS launch before. So I have kind of an idea what to expect, but I'm sure I'll be blown away nonetheless. As that rocket takes off, what will be the system or technology that you're going to be remembering working on that was either the most fun or the most challenging for you? So I'm a trajectory guy. You heard me mention NRHO earlier. So all these orbit terms are really kind of my bread and butter. So I'm really working actively on a guidance navigation control scheme. We call it SE3. And it's a way of tracking how your spacecraft goes in terms of you know, from point A to point B and where it's looking when it's going from point A to point B. And if you treat these together, you can have a very accurate system. So it's kind of a little bit in the weeds, but it's a mathematical formula that's never been tested out in a spacecraft before. And the Artemis program is going to allow us to really see that perform in the long run and hopefully build in some very robust autonomy into our space exploration systems. That had to be fun coming up with that. And I'm afraid I don't speak math very well. But it occurs to me that you're shooting a rocket towards not a stationary target, but the moon is orbiting. That had to be interesting to figure out just how you're going to do that. Right. Well, we're all orbiting. We're all moving at different speeds. So when you launch a rocket, it's moving on the surface of the Earth. So we launch out of Cape Canaveral facing east because we get the boost from the speed of the rotating Earth. Uh, It's much more of a speed boost than you get at, say, the poles, where you don't get that benefit because you're not moving relative to the center of the Earth. And so you get that inertia. Of course, you're moving around the sun, the moon's moving around the earth, and you get these fancy Lagrange points. And if you design your trajectory clever enough, then you can use those Lagrange points to your advantage, and moon's gravity to your advantage. Things like the James Webb Space Telescope orbits the L2 point, Earth-Sun L2 point. And so it's able to utilize this kind of gravitational boundary to its advantage and be able to have a very stable orbit. How incredible is this? This is like being inside of a science fiction novel and getting to talk with you about it. Really is. And if you saw those new images, just mind-blowing, the detail that they had. I have NASA's new vision statement here. NASA's new vision statement is exploring the secrets of the universe for the benefit of all. Let's look at that as it relates to not just the Artemis One, but to the mission in general. First of all, what secrets of the universe do we want to find with the Artemis One mission? and with the program itself. Well, the Artemis One mission is really more of a secrets about NASA safety or safety of our astronauts and the demonstration of the system. Back in Apollo, when we launched a rocket, we didn't have the robust autonomy that we have now and the capability to control it remotely. So uh, we can test out these systems safely without 
putting our astronaut in any more risk than they have to be. However, the entire Artemis program is planning on unlocking a lot of different secrets about the universe. There's a lot of that we don't know about the moon, even though it's our closest neighbor. We've never drilled more than you know, a few centimeters beneath its surface. I mean, Apollo has managed to get a few feet with a core sample, but really that's not very much. I mean, we know a lot about the geology of the Earth, and we've only recently discovered that there's moonquakes at all. It was long after the Apollo program. And so now we know that the moon is at least somewhat active geologically, and we have to learn a lot about its geology, its history, and learning about the moon tells us about Earth, tells us about our history. Aside from that, there's a whole bunch of technologies that we need to prototype on the moon. I think I mentioned it during some of our last interviews. Some of the technology, the hard point of the Artemis program is to develop, prove, and robustify, <laughs> make robust a lot of the technologies that we need to be reliable on Mars, because on Mars, there's no three-day back to Earth. There's no resupply service. You have to use what's there, and you have to make it sure that it lasts for a long time. Now, we're pretty good at that with robots. On Mars, we have the Spirit, Opportunity, Curiosity, Perseverance, Rovers, and all of these have gone beyond their initial mission. So we've proven that we can build technologies that last a long time. But compared to keeping a human alive, keeping a robot alive is a lot easier. So all these systems that have to be dust resistant, radiation resistant, and have to last a long time, it's a big question about how we do that when Apollo only had to last 72 hours. How do we build these systems to last 72 days, 72 months? And what about the second part of the statement, for the benefit of all? What are we going to be seeing in terms of how not just my audience and mainly educators and makers, but the general public can get involved with the Artemis missions? Exactly. Yeah, this part really gets me excited. Of course, all of this gets me excited. You probably tell that by now. But we have the Artemis Accords, and the Artemis Accords have so far, I think, been signed by 24 countries from all over the world. Just recently, we signed on Saudi Arabia. Japan signed on in France. Of course, all of our European partners, Canada. And so this is an international endeavor. We can't go to Mars to live and stay by ourselves. It requires a lot of cooperation. And so when we say for all mankind, we do mean that. A lot of the technology that we brought back in the Apollo program has gone in to directly benefit our lives. I might have mentioned during our previous interviews that NASA's estimated return on investment from the Apollo era was anywhere between 700% and 3,100% for every dollar we invested in NASA in terms of new technologies, patents, and economic growth in general. So the Artemis, investing in the Artemis program might seem like kind of a economic albatross with everything going on in the world. But it is guaranteed that all the stuff that we invest in in NASA is going to directly benefit our lives and help us solve problems here on Earth. Not just for us here in the United States, but again, for all mankind. What about the collaborators? What can you tell me about the contributions of some of the countries that are currently partners? Sure. So let's start with the Canada arm. So Canada, of course, making the Canada arm, this is the same technology that's gone into the space shuttle and the International Space Station, and in fact, is still operating on the International Space Station. Well, the next generation of that is going to, take, going to be part of Gateway. In addition to that, our ESA partners, European Space Agency, is building the international habitation element and Esprit element, which is the refueler and kind of a logistics component of the Gateway. JAXA, that's the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, I believe, so Japanese NASA, they're contributing as well as part of the ECLIS, which is uh, it's kind of like the environmental control system, the life support system of the international habitation element. They're also delivering a logistics module out there. They call it the HTVXG. We're currently working with them here at Kennedy Space Center to help build and refine their technology for that. In addition to that, we have another international partner we're looking for, for the airlock module. 
so stay tuned for that. We're going to announce whoever that's going to be pretty soon. Anytime, I don't know, hoping within the next month, but we'll see. So there's a lot of international collaboration just with Gateway itself. But that's not saying that we don't partner with other people. As I mentioned, the NRHO is a unique orbit. One of the unique aspects of that is it's cheaper to get to the NRHO than it is to something like low lunar orbit, where we put things in Apollo era. So other agencies' rockets, international rockets, commercial rockets, can actually deliver things to the NRHO, where they couldn't deliver them to low lunar orbit. So that opens up opportunities for more collaboration internationally and commercially. In addition to the primary mission of Artemis One, checking safety conditions for future manned spaceflight, there are some secondary objectives. According to NASA's webpage, a number of small CubeSat satellites, or CubeSats, are going to be aboard the SLS to be launched into space. So every time the SLS, Space Launch System, goes to the moon, it has what we call an ESPA ring, a really big ESPA ring that's part of the adapter section. And it deploys a whole bunch of CubeSats. The NRHO, like I mentioned, is kind of a funny orbit. And one of the benefits of the NRHO, one of the many benefits, is that it's really easy to depart the NRHO and go to deeper space destinations to explore other things. Some of these CubeSats have their own miniature propulsion systems, and they can go out into, not interstellar, but interplanetary space, you know, go around an orbit around the sun instead of the moon or Earth. And CubeSats are becoming increasingly powerful. And there's a whole bunch of technologies that we've recently developed in academia, especially from the, the formulation side and from the controls and dynamics side, that had never been demonstrated, things such as formation flying in CubeSats. And this would be a great chance to develop those technologies and show the potential of really lightweight payloads doing amazing things in deep space. Matt outlines some of the amazing things of which those CubeSats might be capable. You know, I don't know the details about the Artemis 1 mission specifically, but I know a few CubeSats, things that are testing out, things like the solar wind, measuring the solar wind in Earth's tail, you know, <laughs> in the Earth area. So measuring solar wind and particles is one way we can get a better understanding of the dynamic environment. Of course, demonstrating communication, satellites, formation flying, like I mentioned before, all really good possibilities for, for CubeSats. We haven't said a word yet about the timeline of Orion once the, the spacecraft is launched into space. What are we going to be seeing over what time? So we're going to launch. So the launch itself only takes a couple of minutes to get into orbit. And in that we burn tons and tons of fuel. <laughs> Millions of pounds of thrust, that's a lot of fuel that you go through. So most of the fuel in the rocket is expended when you go up into low Earth orbit. After that, we go in orbit around Earth and perform a systems check. It's about 90 minutes to orbit the Earth at that point. And then we have a three-day journey over to the moon. We perform a lunar flyby insert into the near rectilinear halo orbit, which is a six and a half day orbit to complete one pass. Now, if this was a full moon landing, once we get through about four or five days of NRHO orbit, then we deploy the human landing system that goes down to the surface for a 30 day stay. Eventually it will come back, redock with Gateway, another three day trip back to the earth. So overall about, uh, about a 36 day mission from end to end. That's hopefully where we're gonna get. Artemis one's gonna be a little bit shorter. So it's just a test flight, it's going to be no astronauts and no moon landing. Now, Gateway is NASA's lunar outpost, designed to orbit the moon and serve as both support for lunar habitation and a staging point for deep space exploration, according to NASA's website. If everything goes perfectly, as sometimes has happened with NASA, I'm thinking of Pathfinder, Mars Pathfinder, what do we learn for Artemis 1 and how does that pave the way for Artemis 2, which I think I remember that's going to be a manned flight. Correct, yeah. So Artemis 1, like I mentioned before, is a systems check to make sure that all of our life support systems for Orion and all the spacecraft are working perfectly so that our astronauts are safe for Artemis 2. 
Artemis 2 is going to send people further than they've ever been from Earth before. Because this NRHO orbit takes them pretty far away from both the Earth and the Moon system. It's quite an elliptical orbit. And this is going to demonstrate the feasibility of maintaining human life in a orbit that's quite a ways away from the Earth. Most of the time, our astronauts are in low Earth orbit, well shielded by Earth's magnetic field. Here, they're going to be well outside the protection. So it's going to demonstrate the radiation shielding of Orion and the crew systems out there. What kinds of cool stuff do you get to design that you can tell me about for Artemis 2 and Artemis 3? Sure. Well, like I said, I'm mostly the math guy. I also work with logistics and mission design. Most of the stuff that we do is going to come into play actually at Artemis 4. So we're designing the sustainable phase of Gateway, where we're going to deliver supplies to the Lunar Gateway and maybe eventually to the surface as well. So part of our task a lot of the time is thinking about how do we establish this supply chain in space, which means delivering cargo there and bringing it back, especially when it comes to lunar samples and maybe eventually in the future, economic gains from the moon, things like helium-3, which is of interest on the moon. There's potential resources, rare earth elements or rare moon elements that we have on the moon as well. We might be able to eventually get this supply chain going both to the moon and back. We hadn't talked about Artemis IV before going back and forth to the moon and supplying, and what other missions are in the future beyond that? Right. So Artemis IV is a second manned landing. It's the first one with the logistics module currently on the docket. And eventually, once we get up there, you know, Artemis IV, Artemis V, Artemis VI, they're really demonstrating the sustainability. The first landing is going to be just a test, a test run of the human landing system. But we want to have a sustainable human landing system, one that we use over and over again and a sustainable architecture around the moon, which includes Gateway. It's your base camp to your Mount Everest, right? So eventually it's gonna be putting human habitats on the moon. We need 3D printers, we need solar panels, we need communications array, and we need a whole bunch of robots down there that are gonna help build us this stuff remotely and prepare it for our astronauts when they get there permanently. In addition to that, NRHO allows us to land anywhere on the lunar surface. And we have a whole bunch of commercial contracts that are out there for the Eclipse mission, commercial lunar payload services, which is going to help us deploy robots all over the moon to help us map, explore, and assess the resources and phenomenon that we discover there. And all this very cool stuff, what is most fun for you? Yeah, I don't know. It's all really fun. <laughs> I would probably, you know, it sounds kind of boring, but both my parents were truck drivers. So thinking about logistics is something I grew up with. And something I do now. So establishing that supply chain and getting, you know, have you ever seen that series, The Expanse? Mm, no. Not familiar with that. That portrays spaceflight as it might be in the near future. You know, humans are terraforming Mars. They've colonized the moon and they're colonizing some of the small bodies throughout the solar system. Really compelling story. So when I think about establishing a supply chain, I'm thinking about, you know, space trucking, deliver stuff to and from the moon, which I don't know, to some might seem boring, but to me, that's exciting. When space travel becomes normal, becomes common, that's, that's the stuff of sci-fi that I'm, I'm really working towards. And that's what excites me. And this is going to be exciting for the general public, citizen scientists, and educators as well, with all kinds of resources available through NASA in connection with the Artemis program. So there is going to be plenty of places to watch the launch. So NASA TV is the go-to, right? So if you want to watch the launch, want to keep track of developments, NASA TV is pretty much constant coverage over the next month about things leading up to the launch. For educators, of course, there's nasa.gov. If you're interested in NASA internships, of course, there's the internship gateway. And yeah, of course, we're on all social media sites as well. And that's a great way to connect. At NASA, if I remember correctly. That's correct, yeah. 
I also wanted to be sure and ask you about lunar dust. Is this even a concern with Artemis one when you're simply going around the moon or is that something you still have to think about? That's a good question. I actually just finished a presentation in Boulder, Colorado last week where I talked about lunar dust, modeling lunar dust at high velocity. So if you have things like lunar landings and all this activity, how much of that dust really makes it to orbit? And the answer is a little bit. But what we're really concerned with at this point is how much of it is carried up during the human landing system. So it is a little bit of a concern on orbit. We're still assessing how much of concern it is, and there's a lot of assumptions that go into that. And part of that's what I mentioned before. We have to learn a lot about the moon. We don't know that much about the moon, despite how close it is. We only have a few videos from Apollo, some samples they brought back, and some of their equipment, their shirts and their spacesuits that they brought back as well. And some of those samples tell us how the dust behaves, but it's, you know, we've only been there a few times and we only have a very small amount of data. So what we're running on this right now is modeling, simulation, assumptions, estimates, computational fluid dynamics. And these are just built on a whole mountain of assumptions based on a very small amount of data. So if you ask me how much dust is there going to be in orbit, I don't think there's going to be that much, but we still got a lot to learn. I'm back on your having said that about moonquakes. I did not know we had moonquakes. Yeah, yeah, this would be pretty cool. <laughs> What's been one of the most fun things you've learned about yourself as a researcher and a maker from working with the Artemis program? I've learned a lot about myself. I mean, you can ask my colleagues when I came here, you know, I definitely had imposter syndrome, you know, I was just the intern. But, you know, I certainly gained confidence as I've been here. I've learned a lot about talking about things. And it's a very positive environment here at NASA about talking about ideas. And I've never once been told to shut up, I don't know anything or put down. So what I've learned about myself is that, you know, I can talk about these things, we can debate them without being fear of, you know, being mocked or, or shut down. The art of learning, I guess, or the process of learning is something that we're all doing. People at NASA don't know everything, far from it. We're all learning and figuring this out together. It amazes me how many talented people say they've experienced imposter syndrome. This isn't the first time I've heard from someone I've thought, whoa, they really are on top of everything. I would think a lot of people at NASA. I can think of only very few people that don't experience some degree of imposter syndrome. This is hard and we're all figuring it out. Let's assume that we now have the third Artemis mission that is on the moon. We're going to send a time capsule up to the moon and we're going to tell people 100 years from now one lesson from Artemis about innovation, creativity, and making a difference. What would you like to put in that time capsule? What do you want them to learn from you? That's a good question. When we think of time capsules in space, I kind of think of Voyager and Golden Disk. And they did a really good job, I think, capturing. If you, if you look at that, I mean, that was a very progressive, thoughtful message from the team out there when it was sent out in the 60s. So... A time capsule, time capsule of the moon. You know, I'd probably try to capture as much of Earth as it is today. Maybe images, sounds. You know, we have a lot of a lot of animals are going extinct. We're in the middle of an extinction event, so I try to capture as much as that as possible, just to make it available when all those animals or life or maybe those ecosystems disappear, and hopefully we can prevent that. But just in case we can't, we have a backup time capsule that shows what Earth is like when humans first colonized the moon. Matt, thank you for your time today. No problem. I'm always happy to talk with you. You and I have been listening to Matt Wittall, Mission Design and Planetary Science at NASA. NASA's Artemis One moon rocket has three targeted launch dates, 
The spacecraft will lift off no earlier than 8.33 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Monday, August 29th, according to NASA's website. Incidentally, if you're on the West Coast, that is 5.33 a.m. And you can follow the journey of Artemis One on NASA TV, as Matt said. You'll also find educator resources at nasa.gov forward slash STEM, along with information on NASA internships. Meanwhile, follow NASA on their social media. Their handle is simply at NASA, as Artemis One carries out NASA's vision statement, exploring the secrets of the universe for the benefit of all. The preceding podcast was not, in any way, shape, or form, affiliated with nor endorsed by NASA. I am not employed by NASA or otherwise affiliated with them. I'm just a total space fan who's going to be avidly watching my computer around 5.30 a.m. Pacific time on Monday, August 29th. Go NASA! And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.